0: Sometimes when you read books from 100 years ago, you come across phrases that just sound bizarre. Like Nobody says that anymore.
1: I'm guessing this happened to you recently. So what was it?
0: Uh, Yeah, so I was reading some old mystery book to my younger daughter the other night, and I came across the phrase, the psychological moment, as in, he arrived at the psychological moment. And the author kept using it, and and one of the characters was even acutely aware that it was the psychological moment, too.
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to have to look that one up.
0: Um, So I did uh, in the middle of the story, which got me elbowed in the ribs by my daughter. Uh, And it means the moment at which something will or would have the greatest psychological effect. But that made me wonder, can we know if we're in a so-called psychological moment?
1: And then you wondered if we can know, are we in such a moment now in the housing
0: market? Uh, Exactly. Yep. You know me well. Uh, So what do you think?
1: It definitely feels that way. At least, a lot of forces are coming together at the same time, but we should get on with the show because our guest today can shed a lot of light on this question. Unfortunately, he's arrived at the psychological moment.
0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm
1: Steve Guggenmoss. Today on the show... We're going to look at the intersection of several topics in the housing market today in a time of change generational change, housing preference change, lifestyle and livelihood change, and a change in awareness of and motivation to address racial inequities across the country, and change in the overall housing market. To help us pull all of these themes together, we're really excited to welcome back Chris Herbert. Chris is the managing director of the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University. He's also a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Design in the Department of Urban Planning and Design, and he's a member of the Freddie Mac Board of Directors. Thanks for being with us again, Chris.
2: It's great to be back with you.
1: All right. So let's start today's discussion kind of at the macro level and then get into some of the themes that I've you know, discussed. Uh, so how are you seeing the state of the rental market right now?
2: Well, I think your reference to the psychological moment is a good one for the state of the rental market. We are seeing a very unusual situation where... Uh, in the homeowner market, prices are going up in many places by in double digit percentage terms, while rents are falling sharply. And we have really have seen very few moments like this in history where the rental and the homeowner market are moving in opposite directions so sharply. Um, but I think if we want to say, well, where, where are we now and where are we going from here? It's important to look at the trajectory of the rental market that got us to this point. Certainly what's happening now during the pandemic is that a lot of the pain that's being felt in the housing market is being concentrated in the rental market and look no further than two important sources of demand one would be young urban professionals folks who are young folks living in downtown uh, urban core areas of cities um, who are now finding that they are working from home and so for many of them uh, this has been an opportunity to either move back home with mom and dad and save on rent or to move some other place that's a nice place to live since they can be anywhere and don't have to play Mm -hmm. High rents downtown. Another important group are students, and students have also, uh, many of them are not returned to campus physically, um, and so are staying further afield from where uh, they were living before, and both of which have taken the this wind out of the sails of the rental market pretty substantially. But if we look at where we were coming into the pandemic, we were at a time where rental demand was starting to slacken slightly, and that really reflects the fact that we've had the millennial generation driving what had been more than a decade a very strong growth in rental housing markets, particularly in urban core areas. And that's because this large millennial generation, which right now the peak of which is about age 29, has been moving through their 20s and entering the housing market. And now they're at a point where that peak is moving into their 30s and starting to push into the age when people start to transition to home ownership. So we'd already seen rental demand slackening coming into the pandemic. And then those forces I just described really exacerbated that 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 switch in, in demand where a lot of sharp fall off in rental demand and a big increase in those people in their early thirties who were at the point of life where they were looking to own and now seemed like a really good time to do that. So I think as we come out of the pandemic, what's behind that peak millennial is not a fall off, but really a long shoulder of, of people in their twenties. And so what we're going to see is that there is going to be a return to rental demand not quite as robust as it was. There is going to be a shift towards home ownership. All of that will take some of the pressure off the rental market, which it's needed. We've been having obviously very tight rental markets, uh, rapid growth in rents. So that slackness will be good. and We'll start seeing some more equilibration between rental demand and homeowner demand going forward.
1: Yeah, and I think um, uh, you're, the, the switch to home ownership, uh, I'm not so sure people would have expected that uh, at the beginning of the pandemic when there was so much uh, Uncertainty in the economy, but certainly the the drive with uh, lower rates uh, and and other factors have really, as you say, kind of driven home ownership to, to new places and, and changed the the residential you know single family market. And I know that you guys have you know really great perspective on the overall housing market. So w- what are some more things that we can see about that?
2: Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, Steve. But you know, when in March when the pandemic hit. Um, as we all recall, I mean, the economy just came to a complete standstill. And there was a lot of concern about what was going to happen to the owner occupied housing market. Uh, demand for new housing kind of fell off a cliff. I think home builders were really nervous about what was, what was going to be the, the next year was going to uh, bring them. And it was amazing how quickly, actually, the demand for home ownership rebounded and came storming back, particularly in the new home side. And so by May we're starting to see new home uh, sales starting to pick up, and by June well back above year ago levels. So as you said, it's a combination of things. Certainly, the fact that the Fed cut interest rates dramatically as a way to uh, spur the economy meant that with mortgage rates tumbling below three percent, there was certainly uh, made home, buying a home much more affordable than it had been. Um, the, the the factor that people were now working from home. They were were uh, able to kind of cut the tether between uh, where they were living and where they were working, and of course, people were working from home. They're studying from home. They're wanting to get outside in a safe way, and so suddenly the single-family home became all that much more attractive. And so you intersect that with what was this demographic wave who were at a point where they were um, moving into home ownership already. The last three years, we've seen the home ownership rate rebound, turn around, and start to rise, and so really substantial growth in homeowners. So that that switching demand towards home ownership really caught the wave, and now we're seeing that that demand um being uh acted on by people who've kept their jobs and have these low interest rates to um to take advantage of
0: you know we still had uh, going into this right we had uh affordability challenges on the on the uh home ownership side as well, which I mean, certainly lower rates uh can help a bit but um you know, if there's more demand for home ownership, but still the the same land, like you know near near the cities, where are people moving? Where are they buying these new homes? Has that changed?
2: I think it's starting to change. You know, and, and this is the kind of uh, information that comes out with more of a lag. But um, you know, one of the big constraints on the housing market, uh, you mentioned affordability. In, in many respects, it's been supply. You know, if we look at what the median price home costs and what that monthly payment would be given today's interest rates there's homeownerships within the range of many people in many areas of the country. But the question has been, are there homes to purchase? Um, And we've been seeing since 2008, the recovery in the new home construction market has been very slow uh, and modest. It's been moving up at single-digit percents over time. And typically coming out of a recession, you see a really sharp bounce back in construction. Um, I think what we're seeing now is that Uh, The fact that people are working from home, again, as as I mentioned, has kind of cut that tether between where you work and where you live, has enabled people to move further out. And so I think we are seeing strong demand. Certainly the inner ring suburbs have strong demand, but more demand pushing out to the edge of metropolitan areas. Uh, And that's a much easier place for builders to build. If you're trying to build more entry-level housing, you need to go where the land is cheaper. And so we're seeing more people move further out, take advantage of the fact that they don't have to commute every day and the fact that they can afford to buy a single family home that far far out. So we are, I would say, seeing shifting demand, pushing out to the edge, although I would just say we do need a little more time to get the data to back up that what seems to be from uh, stories you see in the press and other things, that's where demand is shifting.
0: So what does this mean that, you know, as people are moving farther away, you know, there is still like sort of the lure of uh of the city and, and proximity right so you know we talked about access to jobs, maybe it's not quite the same thing uh with with working from home, but what about just sort of general themes of uh, you know walk- uh, walkability amenities in in the city whether you know shows art museums uh bars restaurants all of that uh how do you do you see a change in demand for that uh as well or just people are growing up and and OK, living, living farther away?
2: You know, I, I think um, I don't think we're going to see a, a sea change in demand away from the city. I mean, I think there's reasons why human beings like to, to live in proximity to each other. They like to be able to, to go out to restaurants, to go to shows, to go to museums, to, to take advantage of parks. And certainly during the pandemic, all those things have been uh, either shut down or uh, viewed as risky. But once we get out of the pandemic, and I'm hopeful that we will, you know, with this vaccine and and other changes by the end of this year, uh, I think we will see people's interest in the city return. That said, you know, I think we all also, again, at this point, demographically, where there are more people in their 30s, they're having families, they're at a stage of life where it's going to be more home-centric. And I think there's reasons why the suburban lifestyle has always been appealing. So, I think we're not going to see an abandonment of the city by any extent, but I think we are going to see stronger demand for suburban living than we've seen in the past. But to your point, Corey, I think the, you know, the folks who have been living in the city who, who have been drawn to those urban amenities, the walkability, be the, the able to go to shops, restaurants, etc., will be looking for those things in suburban areas as well. So I think uh, the, the developers who are able to recreate some, some density, in a suburban lifestyle where you can still get on your bike or or walk to a shopping center will be uh, most successful.
1: And I think um, as we talk about um, you know where demand is and place of, of where housing is, uh, you know that brings to mind other issues of 2020 where um, race has become a bigger part of the conversation. And and we certainly see in the housing market that there's been inequalities in the past, and and there's ideas of, of is there an ability to um, for for everyone to, to move to these new places? Um, and uh, what what are kind of you seeing in the market as as in in, in those respects?
2: You know, I think um, if, as we think about uh, opening up access to suburban areas, in particular, to people of color, um, two, two broad avenues that I think are uh, areas where policy ought to be concerned. One of them has to do with enabling access to home ownership. Certainly, as we think about many of these areas in, in the suburban areas, home ownership rates are very high. Much of the housing stock is owner-occupied. And so certainly a primary way of, of moving into these communities is through home purchase, not, not to mention the fact that uh, there's a whole host of reasons why homeownership is financially beneficial for folks. Uh, it would be good to support in any event. And the, the magnitude of the gaps between whites and people of color in home ownership rates, particularly African-Americans where that rate is a gap is about 31 percentage points. And with Latinos, it's about 27 percentage points is really uh, nothing short of astronomical. And so certainly efforts to encourage and enable people to purchase homes uh, will be an important part, I think, of addressing uh, racial disparities in housing. And and that means making sure that people have access to good quality, affordable uh, loans but it also means expanding access to down payment assistance as the lack of savings is often the biggest barrier to be people being able to afford a home. It also means expanding access to home buyer education and counseling as uh, people who are don't have a family history of home ownership certainly can benefit from that advice in navigating what is a very complex process. I would say that on the rental side, the other piece of this is we need to expand opportunities for for rental housing in the suburban communities as well. And so we do really need to, to look to ways in which um, not just home ownership opportunities, but affordable rental opportunities are available in a broader range of, of communities.
0: So that really gets into uh, land use planning, right? And, and zoning where so much suburban zoning has uh, excluded multifamily uh, and, and been very single family focused, even larger lot size, making that that harder. Uh, how does that factor in it? And what are we seeing now that, that we might want to pay more attention to?
2: You no, know, absolutely, Corey. I mean, if, if we think about where housing is being built, the really important factor is what's what's the zoning? How what kind of a housing is enabled by local zoning um, and how hard is it for developers to, to try to push through changes? And so uh, the suburban areas of the U.S., even many cities have been predominantly zoned for single family housing. And in many uh, suburban communities, there may not even be any or very little multifamily housing that can be built as of right. And so I think as we look to expand the range of of housing options in these uh, uh, suburban areas that uh, changes to zoning to allow for multifamily housing, particularly uh, in zones that are areas that have access to public transit, um, as well as smaller lot single family housing and um, a greater density of not just single family housing, but allowing for two family or three family housing in those areas. And and we are seeing uh, movement towards that. I think um, in the last few years, most notably um, Minneapolis, the city of Minneapolis voted to eliminate single family zoning in the city. And so now as of right, where previously it was single family zoned, is people can now put up to three units on that site. Um, in Oregon, as well, at the state level, changes in um, state law uh, allowing for, depending upon the size of the municipality, uh, also a two to four units as of right in areas formerly single family. So, and that has now led many parts of the country to start taking up that that discussion about how can we allow for marginally greater density in places that have been exclusively single family. And I think that's also leading to greater discussions too about how we can expand opportunity to build. Even higher density multifamily housing, particularly in, uh, as I said, transit-oriented locations.
1: And I think um, you were talking to about the you know rental and areas of opportunity, and uh, in addition to to um, the ownership for minorities. And uh, I think that you know as we think about that kind of thing as well on, on the on the rental side, it's and getting people into areas of uh, of opportunity. Um, one method of, of getting there has been uh, low income housing tax credits uh, and and properties getting built and placed in areas of opportunity. Of course, not all of them go there. They go in communities uh, uh, all through the different cities. But uh, as you look at the deeply affordable market and, and other segments of the affordable market, how do you see them being served right now?
2: The, um, you know, as we look at the issue of rental affordability, um, you know, one of the real hallmarks of the, the market over the past 15 or 20 years has been we've seen uh, a significant growth in rent burdens moving up the income scale. And so it's gotten a lot of attention, the fact that people who are moderate income households are paying a disproportionate share of their income on housing as well. But I think the way we shouldn't lose sight of is even though that is the case and it has driven a different conversation in many cities about the need for affordable housing, um, that the vast majority of people who are severely cost-burdened are extremely low-income households, making under, say, 30% of area median income or up to 50% of area median income in high-cost markets. And so it's really that that income segment where I think from a policy point of view, we need to be paying particular attention to. You know, you mentioned the low-income housing tax credit, which has been the only real source of production of affordable housing since the late 1980s. I mean, certainly a really important vehicle for expanding the supply of, of affordable housing. It's unfortunately not a deep subsidy. And so the, the program is structured so that units are affordable to households at 50 or 60% of area median income. And the rent itself isn't even tied to the income of the tenant. So if you fall are income qualified and fall below that level, you may be facing a rent that's still eating up a lot of your income. And so it's important to, in many cases that the LightTech program gets combined with other subsidies in order to reach those more deeply, uh, uh, more deeply affordable units that these very low-income, extremely low-income households need to be able to live within their means. So I think that you know, the LIHTC program has been incredibly important um, and continues to be. I think, you know, they, as we think about siting, I think there's always been concerns about whether or not those developments are disproportionately in lower income communities uh, and disproportionately communities of color and in some sense exacerbating patterns of segregation by income and race. Um, What I would say, though, is that as much as we're thinking about expanding access to communities of opportunity, so-called communities of opportunity for people of color, we also need to be thinking about investing in those low-income communities of color as well. we have uh, have research has shown that, in fact, tech developments have a very positive impact on surrounding property values. And so a uh, key thing is to make sure that the program is at a sufficient scale to be able to make a kind of a both-end investment, both increase opportunities to build affordable housing in communities of opportunity and make investments in low-income communities of color where it's needed as well.
0: So, Chris, one, one of the aspects with... Uh you know, the, the so-called high opportunity areas is what else they offer beyond housing, whether, you know, school quality or access to jobs or, you know, some of those other, those other factors. Um, So how, how do we think about that uh, when, when investing in, in areas that are not so-called high opportunity areas, like, you know, bringing some of those those features and amenities. And that seems to go beyond housing, right?
2: Absolutely, Corey. That's a great point. You know, and when we think about um, investing in these communities, good quality housing is certainly an important part of the infrastructure. Um, it's an important part of the infrastructure because it, for people to have access to good quality housing that is healthy and sanitary um, is, is just an important part of their well-being. And to the extent that you have good quality housing it has spillover effects on surrounding properties as well. But as you say, it's that's only uh, one piece of the puzzle. And certainly, um, the quality of public education in the area is extremely important uh, as, as a way for, for people who live there to be, really have an opportunity to uh, get a good education and, and succeed over time. And there, are, there are programs um, that have uh, tried to link investments, reinvestments in housing and uh, in public amenities like public education, such as the Choice Neighborhoods Program that, that HUD has um, been uh, advancing for the last decade. Um, and there's also uh, uh, Promise uh, Neighborhoods, and I'm going to get the name wrong, um, that, that came out of a, a purpose-built, excuse me. There's also purpose-built communities organization that came out of Atlanta that has been linking uh, significant investments in housing with efforts to uh, revitalize public schools as a way to make sure that those two work hand in hand. Uh, but you know, beyond that, I think there's also ways in which we can think about uh, subsidized housing developments serving as a platform for opportunity, which is to say that there are many oftentimes the people who are in subsidized housing have uh, suffered from you know, poor educations in the past, have had issues of poor health, poor mental health, um, and uh, have issues of children they need to take care of. And so uh, having housing linked to a range of supportive services, workforce development programs, healthcare, mental healthcare, childcare, all of which I think can really help to take advantage of the fact that the subsidized housing is creating some stability in their lives, but that alone is not gonna help them advance. But these other investments in supportive services are important. And uh, are, are things that we also ought to be investing in through housing policy as well.
1: I think all, all these uh, actions that you talk about related to people kind of innovating and thinking about connecting housing to, to other you know, policies uh, is, is, I think there's a little bit more energy around that maybe and a little bit more focus on that as a result of the pandemic uh, and, and the housing situation as, as bad as it was leading into that. And uh, you know maybe this is an opportunity to speak through you know uh, the broader impacts of, of the pandemic, I guess. And uh, you know certainly I think that we had uh, concerns about renters coming in. We talked before about how quickly the single family market recovered. Um, we continue to have I guess concerns about how renters will, will get through this period. Uh, as you take a focused look at them, what, what do you see?
2: No, there's no doubt, Steve, that. Um... There, many renters have struggled to be able to keep up with their rent payments as well as uh, you know other necessary expenses for food and other uh, important items as well. And so as we look at uh, the situation of renters at this stage of the pandemic, um, we have managed to keep many of them housed so far as a result of a combination of financial supports uh, through the different acts that Congress passed last spring and in December. Uh, and through a variety of eviction moratoria passed both at the, at the state level as well as the CDC moratorium. The, the package that's now making its way through Congress will even add further supports to, to renters as, as part of that package that I think are clearly needed. The, you know, it's, it's difficult to know the extent of, of um, the lack of uh, how far renters are behind, but the Census Bureau. Uh, pulse Survey, which they've been doing since the start of the pandemic, provides a good indication of the, the broad magnitude of that issue. And there are millions of renters who report being behind on the rent. And using that information, many have estimated that the rent, rent rearage is in the tens of millions of dollars. And so Congress has, in fact, uh, authorized, I believe it's uh, uh, 20 or 30 million dollars as part of the latest package that, uh, to go towards rent support. So um you know, I think that will be necessary and important to make sure that as these eviction moratorium are raised as we come out of the pandemic, that there is financial support to make up that arrearage and, and keep people stably housed so that as the economy recovers, they're in position to take advantage of that.
0: You know, with with so many renters affected uh, by the pandemic and and job loss and, and you know, we talked about the different eviction protections. I imagine a fair amount of renters are uh, you know when the eviction protections are over, uh, we will have to make uh, quite a bit of back rent. Uh, you know, ha- have you been seeing any estimates of what that might look like?
2: You know, the um, it's 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 difficult difficult to get systematic data on that, Corey. Um, we there are a few studies that have been done um, that have been able to get rent roll data and look specifically at individual renters and how far behind they are. Uh, just, and they are a little bit of an unusual slice because uh, several of these studies at least are relying on more tax credit developments and the like, um, which may be a unique slice of the market. But what that shows is that there, um, there are many renters who are behind in rent are only behind by, you know, a month or so. So they're, they're not behind by a significant amount, but that there are a group of renters, a small group of renters who are behind six months or more. And so if we look at that total uh, renter rearage, it's not evenly distributed across renters. It's heavily concentrated among a smaller set of renters who were completely you know, upended by the pandemic and have been unable to make any payments on rent for a long period of time. And so that does mean that those are certain group of renters are going to have to, to be um, the beneficiaries of some substantial payments in order to keep them. Stably housed, but that, the good news is too that, that many renters can be, you know, brought back current with uh, without substantial payments of back rent. There, you know, there there are some concerns too that uh, what's happened is you know, renters have basically turned over every rock and uh, and, and looked sort every opportunity to find ways to make ends meet during the pandemic, and that's included things like using their credit cards to pay rent, using payday loans to pay rent tapping their savings, turning to family and friends. And unfortunately, people who have done everything they can to make up their rent payments are not typically not eligible for rental assistance uh, because they've paid their rent. They're not behind on their rent. And so I think that there may be ways, too, in which the impact of the pandemic on renters will be felt going forward, even with the support, among those who have really depleted a lot of their resources and put themselves in debt. Um, in a way that programs aren't right now designed to address.
0: Right, yeah, sort of the the hidden the hidden impacts. Of-
2: the hidden impacts, you know, and I think, yeah, you know, the, you know as I said, as we talked about at the outset, you know, many people were at a point where they were thinking about making move to home ownership, and you know, I think for some folks who had been looking to save that down payment, the, the pandemic has put them back to square one on that process
1: so uh so Chris it uh, agreed the, um, the the issues around back rent and uh, the, the impact of renters are still so hard to measure it's it's clear that people have been prioritizing uh, making payments and and that certainly is a good thing and it's clear that that people are starting to notice these issues and, and I'm hopeful that uh, uh, that that we'll get through to the other side. And as we talk about this, maybe in a year, hopefully a lot more has been resolved. Uh, As we think about other topics in housing, I think a lot of what we've talked about related to affordability, Uh, it would be no surprise uh, a year ago to us that we'd be talking about that today. Uh, Some of the things are are a lot bigger surprise. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, as we look forward, uh, I don't think any of us uh, can can say that we can forecast as well as we can look back, but but there are kind of emerging topics, and I, and I know at Freddie Mac we start to think a little bit more about uh, issues of climate and how it affects uh, our our business, and I imagine with your view of the overall housing market, you do a little bit of that as well.
2: Yeah, yeah we try to. It's obviously an important topic and one that um, is constantly in the news. You know, and I think as we look at the, the risk of climate change for the housing market. You know, the, the obvious ones are uh, having to do with rising sea levels and the increasing frequency and severity of hurricanes and how that has led to uh, you know, what used to be 100-year floodplains being 10-year floodplains. And so you know, the obvious issue that I think many folks have, have looked at in the housing market is this risk of, of, of extreme hurricanes, extreme weather, and, and rising sea levels. But the experience we just had this winter with texas um, shows us that there's a lot of ways in which the climate change are going to expose us to risks that perhaps we haven't anticipated very well and so you know in texas we had a situation where you know a very extreme cold weather led to a breakdown of the power system which led to people being without heat which led to water pipes bursting in many homes and people who were still without water weeks later and so uh, you know, the kind of links in that chain um, to get to, this, to the point where we have houses that have been damaged by burst pipes and without water. Um, and I don't know that it's an issue that was on our radar screen. I'm not sure how many people's radar screens it were. And I think it just highlights the fact that climate change is going to affect our our economy, affect our built environment in a host of ways um, and we're going to have to be um, adjusting to those in terms of uh, thinking about new ways to, to mitigate risk that we hadn't anticipated and and have disaster response systems that are also ready to uh, to meet those challenges. You know, and, and, you know I, this one other thing on climate change, I guess, as we think about it, we, we think about the kind of direct impacts of, of, on housing of changes in weather, like this example in Texas, like the hurricanes, like hailstorms, which are some, among the most damaging events. The housing, Um, but there's also the secondary effects of ways in which the economy is going to shift and jobs are going to be uh, at risk, and what impact that will have on people and how well they they stay housed. So um, there is this is a big important topic and one that I think we we're only learning about is as each of these new risks uh, gets exposed gets gets revealed.
0: You know all the these the changes in upzoning. You know as you said uh, sort of. Put things in a direction towards uh, you know maybe greater density uh, later, but but I'm curious you know as we look at you know Minneapolis or or, or Portland or California where with this focus on one to three or up to up to four units, you know what do you see as the the near term impact of of that um, you know beyond just paving the way for for something that may come later.
2: Yeah, Corey, that's a great observation because I think, you know, there's there's a lot of hope, I think, on the side of particularly urban planners who would like to see some uh, greater density built into these communities, that there will be, you know, I don't know, a sea change, but a, a fairly significant change in the opportunity to have additional housing in these areas. And I think the best guess is that this will be something that will only change slowly. And uh, if we look at the experience, for example, of Portland, Oregon, which has been promoting the use of ADUs for 20 years, um, just changing regulations to make this uh, uh, an option that people can do is not enough to actually get housing produced. And it takes time for people to who own these properties to 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 become around to the idea of actually adding it to looking into what's entailed to designing them to getting the finance. There's a lot of obstacles to, to, re- to rebuilding, retrofitting the built environment to accommodate these, uh, the ability to add density. So um, I don't think we're going to see any big change overnight. Um, I think it's the kind of thing, too, where the development community might look at this and see an opportunity, but it's going to take time for them to figure out how to make this density work for them in a way that's a good business model. So um, so we'll see. But I, I think it is a step in the right direction. I think even if we add uh, a small number of units in these places, it'll help given that we need to add a lot more housing, a lot of uh, broad range of housing types. But it's certainly by itself not a game changer. And it's also, I would say, going to take time to, uh, to even make much of a difference.
0: Chris, you know that's a really great great point. Every, everything you talked about with, with Texas, it really does demonstrate how interconnected Housing is to you know, the broader physical infrastructure of the country, and, and also just the you know each of our lives. So um, Certainly, you know, go, going back to the uh, the out of date term from the intro, uh, certainly does seem like we're in a psychological moment now. And uh, thank you so much for for being with us today to talk through all of these uh, interconnected aspects of, of housing in our lives.
2: Always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me back. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.